Good morning, everyone. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark, and we'll get there in just a moment. I want to begin uh, today by giving you a, a test, a little examination. It consists of one question initially, and then it uh, breaks into five parts. So uh, bear with me. This is a test for your eyes only, and uh, I pray that God would use it. Uh, here's the question, the principal question. What is the most important thing in your life? Right, that is the test. Uh, what is the most important thing in your life? Now I'm going to break that down into five parts uh, to help us answer that question. The first part concerns your thoughts. Are you ready? What do you think about when nothing else requires your attention? What do you think about when nothing else requires your attention? And so you're driving to Dallas or Austin. You're sitting in the barber's chair. You're waiting in line for something, or you're sitting in a church meeting not unlike this one. Does your mind naturally, almost effortlessly, drift towards something? What? Do you imagine a scenario in which you become wealthy? What would my life be like if I owned that? Do you imagine a scenario in which you obtain power and influence? Do you imagine a scenario in which you engage in an illicit relationship? Do you imagine a scenario in which you're the center of attention? Is there a place you visit repeatedly in the secret recesses of your mind? If so, you have just identified the most important thing in your life. Part number two. Remember, there are five parts. This is quite the test. Part number two concerns your emotions. What are your most uncontrollable Emotions. Not what are your emotions. We all know what our emotions are. What are your most uncontrollable emotions? And I want you to think in terms of three ways. First of all, in terms of paralyzing fear. Do you ever find yourself in the grips of paralyzing fear? Paralyzing fear is fixated on the future. Fixated on the future. We fear we're going to lose something that something being what we perceive to be most important to us. And the result is paralyzing fear. The second is paralyzing guilt. It isn't fixated on the future. It's fixated on the past. It isn't fixated on that most important thing that we think we might lose. No, it looks backward. And it is fixated on that thing most important to us that we think we have failed. Unbridled guilt. And not only is there paralyzing fear fixated on the future, not only is there paralyzing guilt fixated on the past, uh, but there is such a thing as paralyzing despair fixated on the present. When because of circumstances or something else, we are unable to have what we have deemed to be and identified as most important. Do you ever find yourself in the grips of paralyzing fear, paralyzing guilt, or paralyzing despair? If so, trace it back, and I guarantee you, you have just identified the most important thing in your life. Part three concerns your motives. 
Why do you do what you do? What do you want, crave, and desire? What shapes your dreams, ambitions, and priorities? What do you think will fulfill and satisfy you? What are you trying to achieve? So we have our thoughts, we have our emotions, we have our motives. The fourth part concerns your use of money. How do you spend your money? If you were to delete all of the essentials from your bank statements for 2012, what would be left? The answer to that question is what is most important to you. Our money naturally flows toward what we value. The fifth part concerns your use of time. Excluding the time spent in necessities such as working and sleeping and eating and so forth and so on, what's left? What occupies those few remaining hours? The answer is what is most important to us. That's the test. It's done. Painful, I know. I've sat, I don't know how many times this past week, hoping it would get better each time. It never did. Five parts to this test, this examination, as we seek to answer this question, what is the most important thing in your life? Now, to mark it, to grade it, we come to Mark chapter 12. I was... uh, Listening to the radio this past week, and a report came out. I don't know where it came out, in the state of Texas, in DFW, or somewhere else. But apparently, teachers aren't supposed to use red ink anymore when marking, grading papers, because it creates anxiety in the kids. No, no red ink. And so the suggestion is that you use blue, or green, or purple. The next time I lecture at the seminary in Dallas and grade papers, I'm going to use glitter. I, <laughs> I wouldn't want to offend anybody or create anxiety in anybody. Friend, take out your red pen. We're going to grade these tests, this exam, what is the most important thing in our lives, thinking in terms of our thoughts, our emotions, our motives, our use of money, and our use of time, and we're going to mark it against what we read here in Mark. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, as Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And so here we have a conversation, a dialogue, this little exchange between the Lord Jesus over here and this individual, this man who is identified as a scribe. Now remember, Matthew, the book of Matthew, the book of Mark, the book of Luke, We refer to those three books as the synoptic gospels. 
They're to be viewed together. Why? Because they, they, they consist of pretty much the same material. They organize it differently, sometimes thematically, sometimes chronologically. But basically, for all intents and purpose, they tell the same story and include the same details. And so we have a parallel account. If we go to the book of Matthew and you turn to chapter 22, you will find the parallel account in which Matthew describes this same incident. He gives us a couple of additional details concerning this scribe. Not only is he a scribe, but he is a Pharisee. And not only is he a Pharisee, but he is a lawyer. And Matthew also tells us, Mark excludes this, but Matthew tells us precisely why this scribe engages Jesus in conversation. It is for the following reason. He is seeking to test him. He is seeking to entrap Jesus in his words. Look at what Mark does say in verse 28. One of the scribes, so this is the scribe, this lawyer, this Pharisee, he approaches, he comes up, he hears what? Them disputing with one another. So he has heard all of the conversations which have taken place prior to this moment. And what has he noticed? What has he observed? And seeing, still in verse 28, that he, Jesus, answered them well. And so he has heard everything that has transpired up until this time. He has heard those three conversations of which we read starting back in chapter 11, verse 27. In the first conversation, we have the priests, the scribes, and the elders. Chapter 11, verse 27, right through to chapter 12, verse 12. They approach Jesus and they attack him personally. By what authority do you do these things? And Jesus answers them well. Then there's a second conversation. It begins in chapter 12, verse 13, concludes in verse 17. It's no longer the priests and the scribes and the elders, but it is now these representatives from the Pharisees and the Herodians. They do not attack Jesus personally. They go after him politically. Is it legal? Is it lawful? Is it right? Is it correct for us to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus answers them, well, and then there's a third conversation. It begins in verse 18 of chapter 12. It concludes in verse 27. And here we have the Sadducees. They don't attack Jesus personally. By what authority do you do these things? They do not attack Jesus politically. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? They go after Jesus theologically. In the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? Do you remember? And Jesus answers them well. And so we have these three fronts in this attack, these three conversations. The first attack is personal. The second attack is political. The third attack is theological. This scribe has heard it all. This scribe thinks he is wiser than all who have gone before him. And this scribe now thinks he has the mother of all questions. And that he is going to test Jesus. He is going to entrap him in his words. He does not come at him personally. He does not come at him politically. He does not come at him theologically. He comes at him morally. And his question is right there at the end of verse 28. Which commandment 
is the most important of all. What's he hoping? He is hoping that Jesus will say something, just a little something, that in some way, some manner, somehow, some fashion, will undermine or belittle the law of Moses. That's what this scribe is hoping for. He's expecting, he's anticipating that in answer to that question, which is the greatest or the most important commandment of all, Jesus is going to say something by which he will demean the Scriptures. He will demean the law of Moses. He's in for a surprise. How does Jesus answer him? Beginning in the 29th verse, he begins by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books constitute the law of Moses. And so Jesus goes right back to the law of Moses. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. The most important is this, verse 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now he adds something in verse 31. Now he skips over the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, still in the law of Moses. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. There's my answer. Right back to your surprise, to the law of Moses. Firstly, the book of Deuteronomy. Secondly, the book of Leviticus. And here you have commandment number one. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here you have number two following on number one, distinct but inseparable. You must love your neighbor. There are no commandments greater than these. Scribe is impressed. It isn't what he was expecting. Verse 32, he said to Jesus, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, God is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's a remarkable statement because what's about to take place in Jerusalem? Why is everyone in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover? Thousands, if not tens of thousands of animals are about to be slaughtered. Blood is about to flow. And yet this scribe now acknowledges in response to Jesus, yes, to love God with all the heart, still in verse 33, and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Here's what I want you to focus in on, verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he, answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And so the scribe's response to Jesus' response to the scribe's initial question brings Jesus to acknowledge right there in verse 34 that this scribe is not far From the kingdom of God. He has drawn close. 
Friends, remember that saying. How does it go? Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Is that how it goes? I, I don't know who came up with that idiom. But that man must have lived an interesting life, or woman. That would make it even more interesting. It must have been a very interesting life. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. You are not far from the kingdom of God. You have come close to the kingdom of God. But it implies what? You are not in the kingdom of God. Close isn't good enough. The scribe grasps something. This scribe sees something. He now perceives something that brings him close. And yet there is still something missing. There is still something lacking which keeps him outside the kingdom. Now, we're going to unpack that and wrestle with it and try to understand it ourselves. And here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to give you four statements that as we think of this greatest commandment and the second commandment, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. We're going to see that the greatest commandment, it serves four functions. Or let's put it this way. There are four things we must understand about the greatest commandment if we are to not merely get close to the kingdom of God, but enter the kingdom of God. Here's the first thing we must notice. It's very simple. The greatest commandment informs. Let's pause there and you think over that for a moment. The greatest commandment informs. What could I possibly mean by that? I mean the following. The greatest commandment informs us. It teaches us what it really means to obey God. It informs us as to what it really is that God wants from us. Now, when we speak of the law and we get into Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and and we use that word command or commandments, God's commandments, we must make a distinction. So I'm going to play something over here and something else over here so that this distinction is clear in our minds. First of all, when we think of God's commandments, we need to recognize that in the Bible, yes, in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, there are commandments which are limited. Did you catch that word? Limited in nature. And so there are commandments, for example, which are limited because they were given to specific individuals. They're limited to time and space. So, for example, you go back to the book of Genesis chapter 22, and God commands Abraham to do what? He commands him to take his son, his only son, his beloved son Isaac, to go up to a mountain that he will show him and to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. That is a limited commandment. Isaac Bernardi has nothing to worry about. It is a limited commandment which was given to a man at a particular time. It is limited to time and space. At other times, there are limited commandments which were given to specific nations. And so the cup of God's wrath is now full, it is overflowing, and he has commanded the children of Israel, the Israelites, to enter the land of Canaan and to destroy the seven nations of the land of Canaan. That is a limited commandment. That is not given to us. That was given to a nation at a particular moment in history, at a particular time, because they had a particular specific function to fulfill. So some commandments limited because they're given to specific individuals. Some commandments limited because they're given to specific nations. Other commandments limited because they're given 
in terms of specific circumstances. And so again, you think of the nation of Israel. God commanded them to celebrate the seven feasts of Jehovah, Passover, which is the context of Mark chapter 12, why they're gathered in Jerusalem, or the feast of the Day of Atonement, or the Feast of Trumpets, or the Feast of Booths. You have these seven feasts of Jehovah, which God commanded Israel to observe. And yet that command is limited to time and space. It was given to the nation of Israel for a certain period of time in preparation for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That's half of the distinction. We need to be very clear on this as we read the Bible. There are many commandments which are limited. Limited to time and space. Specific individuals, specific nations, or specific circumstances. Now jump over here in this distinction. There are commandments in the Bible which are unlimited without any restriction. They are given to all people in all places at all times. We call this God's moral law. Commandments which are eternal in nature. And they apply, again, let me repeat it, to all people in all places at all times. We usually turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 20, for a pretty good summary of those commandments. What do we find there? What we call the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And so that's not not because we restrict God's commandments to those ten, but it is because every commandment, every commandment which is unlimited in nature, which we find in the Bible, fits into one of those ten commandments as they are listed there in Exodus, chapter 20. Now, Jesus' point in this text is what? That even all those commandments which can fit into the Decalogue, they themselves are summarized in these two commandments, the greatest commandment and the second commandment. You are, number one, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You are, second of all, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is teaching what? He is teaching the following, misplaced love, misdirected love is the reason we disobey. Did you catch that? Misplaced or misdirected love is the reason we disobey. There is an inseparable relationship, correlation between love and obedience. And so if we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, And if we love our neighbor as ourselves, we will obey the Ten Commandments. We will obey all of those commandments which are unlimited in nature for all people, in all places, at all times, wherever we find them in the Word of God. And so the the greatest commandment informs us. It teaches us what obedience is really about. That obedience to obey God is to love God. Therefore, the greatest commandment that we can write over all of them is that we must love God because the individual who loves God is the individual who will obey God. Friends, the scribe gets this. That's what he understands. That's exactly what brings him close to the kingdom of God. 
He has gone somewhere that his fellow scribes and the Herodians and the Pharisees and the majority of the Sadducees have not gone. He now understands that the law is not primarily concerned with externals, but the law gets to the heart of the matter and the law shows us our most fundamental basic problem, which is our attitude toward God. And therefore, the greatest commandment in which all commandments are summed up and summarized and epitomized is this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He gets it. But at this point, that's all he gets. It brings him close, but it does not bring him in. There are three further additional truths that we must affirm concerning the greatest commandment. We've covered number one, the greatest commandment informs. Here's number two. Let this sink in. The greatest commandment exhausts. Not the exhaust that comes out of your car. Exhausts. It tires us out. The greatest commandment exhausts. I I enjoy watching the um, finish line when it comes to marathons, triathlons. Don't have much time for the 26 miles or whatever it is in between, but it's awful for me to admit it, but I kind of like watching the finish. Uh, In particular, as uh, many of the athletes just kind of collapse over the finish line. Some of them collapse well ahead of the finish line. They are utterly, completely exhausted. They have expended, what? Every ounce of physical energy, and they have nothing left. They have nothing more to give. They need someone's help. They need someone's assistance, because in terms of their own physical energy and ability, it's gone. They are exhausted. Are you getting the idea? The greatest commandment, exhausts us. How does it do that? Well, again, hear the words of the Lord Jesus. Here it is, the greatest commandment. You are to love the Lord your God, Now, notice the fourfold description, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, you've got your red pen in hand, right? And you've got that test with which we began. What is the most important thing in your life? And I took you into the realm of your thoughts. You are to love the Lord your God with all your mind. But according to your thoughts, what really is the most important thing in your life? I took you into the realm of your emotions. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart. But when you look at how you fall prey, probably more than you care to admit to those paralyzing emotions of fear and despair and anxiety and everything else, you see really what is the most important thing in your life and what drives you. I took you into the realm of your motives. You are to love the Lord your God with all your soul. And I took you into the realm of money and time. You are to love the Lord your God with all your strength. Friend, as I have sat this test innumerable times this past week, there is red ink all over the place. And I find myself exhausted. I am to love God with all my mind with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength. Here's my problem. I do not love God like that. You see, the greatest commandment, we must understand this, the greatest commandment exhausts us. Now, this is powerfully, wonderfully illustrated in John Bunyan's little classic, The Pilgrim's Progress. Spiritual allegory. If you haven't read it, pick it up sometime and read it. 
He simply depicts, by way of a spiritual allegory, the spiritual journey of a pilgrim, a Christian, who leaves the city of destruction and makes his way to the celestial city. Very early on in this journey, he's pointed to the right way by a man named Evangelist. But no sooner has he embarked on the right way that he encounters another man called Mr. Worldly Wisdom. And Mr. Worldly Wisdom imparts a little little, uh, advice. He says, look, you see that little hill over there? That's where you need to go next. And there you will meet a man called Mr. Legality. And Pilgrim leaves the way, he leaves the path, and he begins to make a beeline for this little hill. The problem is the, the, the way is pleasant initially, but the farther he goes, the more difficult the terrain becomes. And he notices that the terrain begins to incline upward and upward and upward and upward until finally he is facing a sheer rock face which actually hangs out over top of him and he is afraid that the rock, the mountain, is going to fall on his head and the burden which he carries, which is the weight of his sin, weighs weighs far more than it has ever weighed in his experience and he reaches this point of despair. Where is Pilgrim? He's at the foot of Mount Sinai. He has come to the law. He has come to the law thinking that in himself he has the ability to obey that law. Not understanding, and friend, you must get this, the scribe did not get it. Maybe he did later by the grace of God in his experience, but he does not get this. The greatest commandment, the law, exists to exhaust us. It exists to bring us to our knees. It exists to enlarge this burden, this weight upon our shoulders as we see our sinfulness. And friend, do not misunderstand your sin. I'm not primarily speaking of the things you've done, the things you think you've done, or the things you're planning to do, or or the mistakes you've made, the little peccadillos, the sins. That's not what we're talking about. We've entered into the heart, the real realm of sin, which is the mind and the soul and the heart and our strength. We've entered into the true nature of sin, which has to do with this simple question. What is the most important thing in your life? What is it? And as you sit that test and you enter into those five realms, we discover God is not the most important thing in our lives. We do not love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is the root of our problem. And no matter how hard I try, no matter how much effort I expend, I always come up short. The scribe does not yet get this. Friend, do you get it? The greatest commandment exists to exhaust us. The third truth we must understand concerning the greatest commandment is this. It directs us. And so number one, it informs us. We understand the true nature of the law. It's all about loving God and expressing that love and obedience. The greatest commandment exhausts us. It shows us what we cannot do. And thirdly, the greatest commandment directs us. It exhausts us to such a degree and it leaves us in such a condition that our only hope is for someone else to come along and and help us. And so I hear God say, rather, let me put it in stronger terms, I hear God command me that I am to love him. I know this love 
is to be expressed in unrivaled desire and delight. I know this love is to be expressed in perfect obedience. But I look at my thoughts. I look at my emotions. I look at my motives. I look at my actions. And I discover that I am full of self-love. I don't love God like this. I can't love God like this. And having learned the disease of my spiritual inability and my spiritual impotency, I look to Jesus. And I look to Jesus for two foundational, fundamental reasons. The first is this, praise God. Jesus loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with all his strength. And here's the wonder of wonders. He loved God in that fashion on my behalf. The second is this, that Jesus, as he was suspended on Calvary's cross, bore God's wrath, what I deserved from my failure, my failure to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. You see, the greatest commandment, yes, firstly, it just just exhausts me drives me to the ground, and then it picks me up, and it points me away from myself to the Lord Jesus Christ, where I find someone who has done what I could not do, and I find someone who has borne the penalty for what I have failed to do. And then the fourth thing we must understand concerning the greatest commandment is this. It instructs us. Now, I'm going to have to proceed slowly here. It instructs us. What do I mean? Well, having informed us, having exhausted us, and having directed us to the Lord Jesus, the greatest commandment now instructs us concerning what God wants from us as his children, as Christians, as those who believe in the Lord Jesus and rest in the Lord Jesus for salvation God commands us to love him with all our soul, heart, mind, and strength. And God commands us to love our our neighbor. Now, again, distinctions, 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 friend. We We must differentiate. And I'll put one over here and I'll put another one over here. We must differentiate between what theologians like to call legal obedience. You got that? Legal obedience. We're going to put it over there. That's category number one. And on the other hand, evangelical obedience. We're going to put that over here. Scripture calls legal obedience the righteousness which is by the, according to the law. It calls evangelical obedience the righteousness which is of faith. Distinction. Are we clear? This is so important. We have legal obedience over here. We have evangelical obedience over here. Legal obedience pertains to the individual who thinks they can and must obey the law of God. It describes that person, that individual who, th- who thinks, believes, that in the, in the end, in the final analysis, God's acceptance of them will depend on their obedience, will depend on the life they have lived, that somehow they will merit God's favor. That is a legal obedience. That is a righteousness of law. Evangelical obedience, the righteousness of faith, is different. 
evangelical obedience pertains to that individual who has been exhausted by the law of God, who hungers and thirsts after righteousness and finds that righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, because of God's love for him, desires to love God and in sincerity of heart seeks to do so. I've written a sentence in the sermon notes. If you don't have the sermon notes open, I beg you just to find them and open them up for a moment because I included a little sentence at the bottom of the sermon notes because I wanted us to be extremely clear on this. Let me read it for you. I'll read it a couple of times and, and I pray it will sink in. While I, I'm standing before you as a Christian, while I repent, of my countless sins and strive to please God in all things, I rest in the fact that my actions are perfect in God's acceptance through Christ. That is evangelical obedience. That is the righteousness of faith. And so the law, yes, the law, the greatest commandment, it informs us. It shows us the true nature of obedience and the true nature of our sin. Having done so, yes, secondly, it exhausts us. It leaves us in a state of despair and hopelessness and helplessness. Having done so, it directs us away from ourselves and points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Having done so, it instructs us in evangelical obedience. Not that we're seeking to do something to earn God's favor. Not that we're trying to do something to merit God's favor. Not that our salvation rests on us, but by virtue of the transforming power of the gospel. And by virtue of the fact that we love God because he first loved us. We, let me repeat it, yes, while repenting of our countless sins, and yes, striving to please God in all things, we rest in the fact that our actions are perfect. In God's acceptance through Christ. And so we hear God command us. We're to love Him. Right there, right there in verse 29, we're to 30. We're to command, we're to love Him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. That means firstly, we are to love Him exclusively. Right? Look at what he says in verse 29. The most important is hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. We are to love him exclusively. We are to love the God, the only God, who has revealed himself in the scriptures. To worship any other God is idolatry. We worship the one true living God. We love him exclusively. We love him uniquely. Secondly, we love him supremely. Look what Jesus adds in verse 30. And you shall love the Lord, your God. It implies what? Ownership. It implies that God has made us part of his family. He has made us part of his temple. He has made us part of his his church, of his people. It implies ownership. We are his people. He is our God, and we love him supremely. Notice thirdly, we love him totally. Verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, the realm of the emotions, with all your soul, the realm of motives, with all your mind, the realm of thoughts, and with all your strength. Nothing I have belongs to me. My entire being is God's. 
and I am to love him with every area of my life. My life. And then notice, fourthly, we are to love him actively. Verse 31. The second is this. You see, love of God is expressed. Expressed in what? It's not passive, it's active. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I love him exclusively. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I love him supremely. You shall love the Lord your God. I love him totally with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I love him actively as my love for him is expressed in my love for my neighbor. You see, the greatest commandment instructs us. Now think again of a scribe. The scribe, he starts off, he start, as he starts off anyway, he's, uh, he's thinking to himself, I have the question by which I, I, can, I can entrap Jesus and, uh, and test him. All these other fools who have gone before me, they failed miserably, but I can do it. Here it is. Which is the greatest commandment of all? Which is the most important commandment of all? And unexpectedly, Jesus goes straight to the law of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Leviticus, and he demonstrates that in those two commandments, love God, love your neighbor, we have the summation of the law, and there are no other commandments greater than these. The light goes on for the scribe. He gets it. Well said. You have spoken rightly. You have spoken correctly. That there are no other commandments greater than these. And they are greater than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. But that's as far as he's gone. Jesus looks him in the eye and he tells him, you are not far from the kingdom. He is close. But he is not in. He has not yet been exhausted by the greatest commandment. He has not yet been directed to Jesus himself by the greatest commandment. He has not yet been instructed by the greatest commandment. Friend, I'm going to ask you, we started with an exam, I'm going to end with an exam. It's simply this, are you close? Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Close is not good enough. The question is this, are you in? Do you really understand firstly what it is God requires of you? We all have our little list of things we think we need to do and a life we think we need to live in order to please God. But when we come to the greatest commandment, we begin to understand what? The true nature of obedience and what it is God really requires of us. But that's not enough. The more we look at that greatest commandment and the more we strive to obey it in our flesh and by our own effort, it exhausts us and we realize that I have no hope of ever obeying God like this. And bringing us to that state, it then points us away from ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, to rest in Christ, the one who loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, the one who loved his neighbor as himself, and the one who bore the penalty of our transgression and our failure to love God as we ought upon Calvary's cross. Friend, are you in? Have you been brought to that point? That, that sense of helplessness, of, of hopelessness, of despair as you look at yourself. And has the Spirit of God ignited in you a hope as you look away from yourself and you rest and you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? The Christ promised is a wonderful invitation. If any man thirsts, 
let him come unto me and drink. What's the cause of the thirst? It is the exhaustion created by the law. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his inner being will flow rivers of living water. Our Father, with that invitation, we do close this day. And we pray that you would bring your word to bear upon the hearts of men and women. We pray that we all might be like trees planted beside streams of living water. May our roots go down deep and may we truly be nourished and sustained by your word, bringing forth fruit in due season. We ask it in that matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.